Will you pray with me? Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to tell you a story. I don't know if it really happened, but I know that it is true. Ten-year-old Bastian Bucks was a shy and outcast lover of books who lived with his widowed father. One day on the way to school, Bastian was chased by bullies but escaped by hiding in a bookstore, annoying the bookseller, Mr. Coriander. Bastian's interest in books led him to ask about the one book that Coriander was reading. But the bookseller advised against it, saying, this is not a safe story like regular books. With his curiosity piqued, Bastian secretly takes the book titled The Never-Ending Story, leaving a note promising to return it, and hides in the school's attic to read. The book describes a fantasy world of fantasia, slowly being devoured by a malevolent force called the nothing. The childlike empress who rules Fantasia has fallen ill and a young warrior, Atreus, is tasked to discover a cure, believing that once the princess is well that the nothing will no longer be a threat. As Atreus sets out, the nothing summons a vicious and highly intelligent wolf-like creature named Gmork to kill him. Bastion suddenly finds himself incorporated into the story and rides on the back of a dragon called Falkor along with Atreus to meet the Empress. But along the way, Atreus is knocked off the back of Falkor and falls to an uncertain but likely death. As the nothing begins to consume Fantasia, Bastian is in disbelief that he himself has been incorporated into this story, denies these events as just being a story. But then Bastian awakens and finds the princess at his side who presents him with a grain of sand, the sole remnant of Fantasia. The Empress tells Bastian that he has the power to bring Fantasia back with his dreams, with his imagination. And so Bastian uses his imagination to recreate Fantasia, the land and its inhabitants, including Atreus. And they see it as they fly across the land of Fantasia. 
When Falcor asks what Bastion's next wish will be, Bastion brings Falcor to the real world to chase down the school bullies. <laughs> the film concludes with the narrator saying that Bastion had many more wishes and adventures. But that's another story. The never-ending story. Much is made today of telling our stories. Many preachers today are encouraging congregants to tell their stories of their own journeys of life and faith, some of which are probably as fantastic as the story of the never-ending story, right? That there are things within our own stories and other stories that heal, that create wholeness, or what the Hebrew people say is shalom. Stories help us to get outside of ourselves and our heads and to experience life in deeper and more meaningful ways. There are people that believe that we need a new faith story today, one that resonates with contemporary people. In 2017, a BBC reported the results of a survey that a quarter of people who describe themselves as Christians in Great Britain do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and three in 10 Christians, that's 31%, said that they did not believe in life after death. What are we to make of this? What are we to make of this as we, as people who take the name Christian as our middle name? How are we to understand our own faith story? I want to suggest to you that some of the reasons for a lack of commitment to the doctrine of the resurrection is multiple fold, but I'm gonna suggest a couple of things. One is we live actually in a post-scientific world. We are beyond science even as we're in the midst of it. And by beyond science, um, if, if you consider black holes and, um, and mysteries like that, then we are even working and in the midst of a beyond science. And many people in our scientific world and beyond today uh, believe that the resurrection, life after death, is beyond any kind of true reality. In other words, they have no room for mystery, the unique mystery that is faith. A second is that we have confined the story of the resurrection to one moment in time, to one person, Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, we have confined our understanding of this story to a fundamentalist, inerrant interpretation of scripture. Instead of letting this story breathe and live in you and me and in the world. But there's another way our faith can be understood, the story of our faith. So let's take a look at this First Testament reading. Remember, I'm using First Testament so that we don't use the term Old Testament because most people today think of old as decrepit, <laughs> which it's really not at all. <laughs> So we use First Testament. 
Our reading is from the book of the prophet Isaiah. And I want to remind you that most biblical scholars believe that this, what is called one of the uh, longer uh, prophetic books, uh, is part of that collection of the longer prophetic books that most biblical scholars believe there are two or three prophets whose writings have been collected. And, and so the reading we hear today is from what is called second Isaiah. There's a first, second, and third Isaiah. And our reading comes from second Isaiah and is a reading, and there are many of these throughout Isaiah, but a reading that refers to a character called the suffering servant. You've probably heard that term before. And um, most Christians today would say, as they hear that story, uh, that the suffering servant is the person, Jesus, the rabbi of Nazareth, that then becomes for us the resurrected Christ. Well, I want us to suspend that for just a moment here and take Second Isaiah at its word, so to speak, uh, set aside for a moment our Christian story, and let's take a look at this passage from the prophet Isaiah. There's a reason it's part of the holy ancient scriptures of Israel. So, um, just want to share with you that this section that we hear today is estimated to have appeared about 45 years after the destruction of Judah and Jerusalem and the deportation of many of Israelites' best and strongest and smartest people to Babylon in the Babylon uh, uh, takeover of Israel. So this is devastating. You know, in, in ancient times, armies came through and they didn't just destroy what was in front of them, but then they hauled off people to a different country. And they became slaves or servants some may have done better than that, but, but it's not a good thing. In fact, it's really awful. And um, Second Isaiah is the part of the book of the prophet Isaiah that seeks to assure the people that God actually does have compassion for them, has not forgotten them, that God is still the God of heaven and earth despite what they are going through, and is and will restore them and bring them home. This is the work of Second Isaiah, to reassure the people. So why all the suffering? Don't you wonder about that? I bet they did. Okay, if you're going to restore us anyway, why not just bring us home now? You know, why all the suffering? And would, why would God's own chosen people have to go through this? Now, I want you to know that this question comes up again and again and again for the chosen people. It came up again during the atrocities of World War II. Why would God put the chosen people through all of this? I don't have an answer for that, but, and I'm not sure I have, have an answer for this, but I'll see what I can do for you. So the response in Isaiah is that it is necessary suffering for the people's sins. Remember, sins, you need to broaden your understanding of sin. Sin is about missing the mark. It's about um, a broken relationship with God and with others and with creation. 
it's not about these detailed little behaviors that we think it is. It's really about missing the mark. So the people have uh, some uh, necessary suffering that is for the sins of the people, but it's also a way of their, through to their redemption. Okay, just hear that. It's also designed to guide them to their redemption. And Israel suffers not just for themselves, but on behalf of the nations of the world in order to redeem all people and restore them to wholeness, which the Hebrews call shalom. Now, that's a pretty powerful thing. They suffer, but their suffering is to, redeem, it's, it's to move toward redemption and to bring all people along with them. This is a powerful thing. And here, this, the suffering servant. Now, so we're listening to ancient ways of, of storytelling. The suffering servant is not a person. It's a nation. Remember in Genesis where God takes Abraham and says, I will make of you a great nation? And remember when Jacob gets a new name and he is named Israel? And the sons of Jacob become the tribes of Israel. So this isn't about one person. This is about a nation of people. The suffering servant, and we could put plural on that, are the people who suffer for the redemption of the world. I think the saints of God get this, right? I think the people who become the saints, they get this. That this is about all of us. It's not about one of us. And what's important to notice here is that this redemption story of the people of Israel, we might as well call it resurrection. We might as well call their redemption and the redemption they bring to all of us resurrection. God is faithful and compassionate, forgiving sins. God is a loving God of the First Testament, not a vengeful, hateful, punishing, judgmental God that many have been led to believe. And when we let this story live and breathe on its own and then pair it with the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the story of our faith takes on new life, takes on new life, breathing life, and becomes the never-ending story with the power to transform you and me. So let's talk about Paul for a minute. <laughs> you know, uh, Paul, you got to love him. I know some of you don't so much. but um, So, so I, I'm going to paint a good picture of you about Paul here. So Paul is a Pharisee. He has studied the Hebrew scriptures. He knows them backwards and forwards, up and down and all around. And so when he reads this passage of scripture from Isaiah, he naturally sees the person and work of Jesus in the story. And there's nothing wrong with that. But we do need to broaden it so that we hear the whole story and not just our story. He was a Pharisee, so naturally he sees this. The mistake we as contemporary Christians often make is that we confine and lock down this Isaiah story to our story instead of seeing it as a broader, bigger whole. Now, it's Paul is speaking from his personal experience of a personal encounter of God through Jesus Christ. And that's what he is witnessing to. And 
in 1 Corinthians, it leads to this resurrection story becoming the central confession of the Christian faith, which goes, Christ is risen, Christ is risen indeed. That is the central proclamation of the Christian faith. The image of Jesus as a suffering Messiah, however, is often something people don't really like to deal with. I and mean, we, we typically uh, go from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. We don't want any of this mom, you know, Holy Thursday, Good Friday stuff. We like winners. Now let me explain to you how this works. I know exactly, because I watched the Olympics in the middle of the night. And I want to say, I watched all, a lot of them. And I realized that if the Americans weren't playing, I wouldn't watch them. Because I, I want to be on a winning team, you know. I, I will confess that we did watch women's rugby, which was very interesting. But Americans weren't in that at all. But, but anyway, I, I, I have to say, we, we like... You know, we value a valiant, conquering Messiah. Uh, we prefer winners. We prefer a strong man, a conqueror, don't we? But as the story, the never-ending story, tells the story, and the owner of the bookstore says, um, ours is not a safe story, like the other books. Neither the story of our ancient ancestors Israel, nor the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. There is, after all, in Paul's witness, that brief moment where he says that Jesus died for us in accordance with the scriptures and was buried. Paul speaks the truth, even when it's hard. And then there's Paul's poignant confession that he is... Uh, one who has arrived late and is the least of the apostles. And here's where you got to love Paul a little bit. I'm the least of the apostles, unfit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Moreover, St. Stephen died at the feet of Paul. And who among us has not felt that? Who among us hasn't felt less than? Or as some preachers would emphasize, you are nothing because of your sin. Well, I don't subscribe to that kind of theology. I subscribe to the theology that the work of God revealed in the prophet Isaiah and in the work and work, the life and work of Jesus of Nazareth is our story. So how do we as 21st century post-scientific Christians discover the truth of the never-ending story in our own lives. You know I'm a huge fan of Father Richard Rohr, and he offers us a way through this. There are some verses in Scripture where the Israelites, the psalmist, or others, like Job, curse God, saying, this so-called life you've given me this life I have is not really life, God. It's death. So why should I be happy? Perhaps some of you have been there. I know I have. Probably you too have experienced true depression or betrayal. And maybe you understand that feeling. 
W.H. Auden, the poet, expressed his grief of the death of his lover in much the same way in his poem, Funeral Blues. He wrote, when his lover died, he wrote, the stars are not wanted now. Put out everyone. Peck up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the woods, for nothing now can ever come to any good. Father Richard Ward tells us that we must go through this that Alden describes. We must go through this path of the suffering servant in order to discover a depth of joy that we will not discover unless we go through these little deaths, some people call it, or not so little deaths, uh, because they feel like we're dying when we go through them. If we are able to feel deeply, not only will we prepare ourselves for the little deaths that we go through in life, but we will also prepare us for our last death and the deaths of those we love. If we bypass our emotional stages with easy answers or pretending the feelings don't exist, and by the way, many people learn this the hard way and get sick and have ulcers and all kinds of illnesses. Um, if we are willing to feel our emotions, we can come to grips with the mystery that is God. Now, nobody really likes this. Nobody wants it, but it is part of our path. And if we can begin to embrace it, we can begin to understand in a holistic way and see that the experience of grief can become both holy and whole. I don't know if you've ever been on that side of it. The writer Christian Wyman in his book My Bright Abyss offers this bit of wisdom. To experience grace is one thing. To integrate it into your life is quite another. So if you want to put an end to dark thoughts that race through your minds, especially at 3 o'clock in the morning, the pressures you feel every day, the many ways you don't feel seen or heard, instead of acting on impulse, stop and wait and study the details of your life. Study these things as if your life depended on it. And when you stay fully present <coughs> with your feelings and sensations and the world around you, then even in the darkness and the cold, joy will arise. Because joy and suffering are two sides of the same coin. Um, when I was working at Texas A&M University in student activities, I developed a severe, uh, severe fear of flying. I couldn't get on an airplane. I mean, you know, you see those cartoons with somebody trying to put a cat in a bathtub? Well, that was me, try people trying to get me on a plane. I was just not going to get on an airplane. And I was very distraught by all of this. And I finally went to a therapist. And, and she said, well, Joe, let's talk about depression. And what are you depressed about? So, you know, nobody wants to talk about stuff like that. But 
anyway, we did, and we worked through some things. And then one, in one of my sessions, she said, well, um, what are you doing to take care of yourself? And I said, well, I'm getting ready to buy me some running shoes, and I'm going to take up running. And she said, and when are you going to do this? And I said, oh, you know, in a couple of weeks. And she said, today. Today you're going to do this. Because that will give you the space to feel what you're feeling. And when you run, you'll breathe deeply. And you will discover that soon the air is sweet, and the sky is blue, and the grass is green in ways you have never seen it before. This is what it means to work through your pain to the other side. Study this as if your life depended on it. And if you are suffering, it means you have a heart. It means you have a soul. It is evidence of your capacity to love. And only those who understand suffering can truly understand life and be of help to others. So y'all know that I was outed when I was a Methodist minister and it didn't go so well. Um, I got a Sunday evening call to come into the pastor's office at the at A&M United Methodist in College Station where I was serving as an associate pastor. And I stopped at the back door and I put my hand on the doorknob because my pastor called me and said, I need you to come back to the church. I've had a bad day. And as I put my hand on the doorknob, I said, you know, God, if this is it, if they're going to out me, just let me face it with dignity. Well, sure enough, that was the announcement. Somebody's made a phone call. They're claiming you're a lesbian, living with a woman here in College Station. And we need an answer in 48 hours, which was against the book of discipline of the Methodist Church. But oh, well, I didn't know that. Um, and so the pastor, Charles Anderson, and I talked for probably an hour. And uh, there was a moment in that conversation when he said, you know, Joe, you will bounce back from this because you're that kind of person. What you need to remember is that as you continue to minister, People will recognize the risen Christ in you by your wounds. This is how God works. That the risen Christ become manifest in self, inside ourselves through our woundedness. And so I implore you to consider that the goodness of God fills the gaps of the universe without discrimination or preference. And God understands you. And because God understands you, it is through God that the nothing will be pushed back. And the never-ending story in our lives will begin. If we are to believe the primary witness of our faith, we believe through our Israelite ancestors and the witnesses of people like the Apostle Paul in an unexplained goodness that is at work in the universe. And death is not just our one physical death. There are degrees of death before that final physical death. And if we are honest, 
We acknowledge that we are dying and that this is what we learn when we are attentive and grace is found at the depths and in the death of everything. And the word for that is resurrection. Our never-ending story is that the tomb is always finally empty and love truly is stronger than death. This is what our ancestors knew and this is what the Apostle Paul knew. And this is what we can know. Amen? Amen. Amen. Amen.